We're back with another evening under Lamplight Podcast with Robert Louis Abrahamson, making our way through Dante's Inferno, which, which means making our way down through the circles of hell, down to the very center. We saw last time that Canto Three began abruptly, with no narrative explanation, just those anonymous, ominous words written above the gateway into hell. Now, one of the things that makes the Inferno such a good poem is the way Dante is always varying the pattern of his cantos. Canto three began with these anonymous words, but Canto four begins with a bit of action. At the end of Canto three, Dante had fallen down in a faint, overcome by his first experiences in hell, as you remember. Canto four picks up right there or perhaps a few minutes or maybe more afterwards. It's no longer a fainting spell, but a deep sleep, as Dante admits, and a sleep that was broken by a loud clap of thunder, as though some unknown voice directing this whole journey has clapped its hands to announce it's time to get moving again. Well, it's been a good sleep, Dante tells us, and he wakes up refreshed, ready to look around and see where he is. He is now across the river Acheron, and now stands at the edge of a deep and dark abyss, a great gaping hole. What's down there at the bottom? He, he can't tell. Everything's obscured by some sort of vapour and by the darkness. This is the Cieco Mondo, as Virgil calls it, the blind world. Dante can't see down there, but he can hear the noise of wailing and crying coming up from below. Now Virgil leads Dante down to the first circle of hell proper. Dante notices that Virgil's face has become pale. Don't ask how Dante can see such things in the darkness he keeps talking about, or how a ghost, which is really what Virgil is, how a ghost can turn pale. Don't ask. <laughs> We'll find a few inconsistencies or improbabilities in the poem, but only a foolish reader would make too much of them. Why have you gone pale? Dante asks. If you're suddenly afraid, what am I going to do? No, don't worry, Virgil replies. It's not fear that pales my face, but pity for the souls below. Well, we might think that Virgil pities all the damned souls, but we'll learn as we go on that they do not deserve pity. No, it's more likely that Virgil's pity is extended not to everyone, but only to the group of souls they're about to encounter on this first circle, which is the region called Limbo, the place where Virgil and his companions have their dwelling. And yes, they, they do deserve our pity. They're not there for any fault they've committed. They have merit but just not enough, and we'll discuss this more later on. The sounds coming from this circle are not the lamentations and cries of pain that come from the lower regions. Here, the sound is more like a sigh than a wail, coming, as Dante says, from sadness, not agony or torment. Virgil and Dante walk along into this region, passing through a crowd of souls who belong there, and and look, up ahead is this bright light, and 
Dante sees there a small group of figures coming towards them, a group of highly honored souls in our world above, Virgil tells him. These are, in fact, the most celebrated classical poets. Homer, Horace, Ovid, Lucan, they come up and greet Virgil as l'altissimo poeta, the loftiest poet. Welcome back, they say, and the four of them and Virgil have a little chat together before they turn to Dante and welcome him into their company. <laughs> yes, Dante has no shame in depicting himself welcomed as the sixth in the group of the greatest poets. He's also declaring to us that he takes his place as the inheritor of the whole classical tradition. The six of them walk on, talking about... Well, well, Dante doesn't tell us what they talked about. It was private. It's better for us not to know, he says. They come, at last, to a great castle, surrounded by seven walls and a moat. They cross the moat without the need of a drawbridge and come to a beautiful meadow, crowded with people, silent or quietly talking, slow, self-possessed. The six of them go apart a little way, up a slope to a high place from which Dante can get a better view of all the people around him. And he gives us a long catalogue of the various figures from Greek and Roman history and literature whom he sees there. Real and fictional characters mixed together. Warriors, politicians, philosophers. And after Dante has taken this all in, the four poets sort of fade away or drop away. And it's just the two of them again, Dante and Virgil, moving on their way out of this peaceful place, out into the place where there is no light. And the canto ends right there. Well, now, here are a few things to think about in this canto. I don't think I mentioned this, but the vestibule region, depicted last time, is considered to be Dante's own invention. It wasn't a part of Catholic doctrine or mythology. And, well, that makes sense. It makes sense that someone as concerned as Dante was about seeing things clearly and choosing the right things should have devoted a special section to those who never bothered to see things clearly or to make a choice. But limbo was not Dante's invention. It was part of Catholic doctrine, or we might say, with reverence, part of the mythology, as the place for babies who had died before they had a chance to be christened. They were too young, of course, to have done anything wrong, but without baptism, they couldn't get into heaven. Limbo was also a place for the great figures of the Old Testament to wait in expectation of the Messiah and salvation. Traditionally, Holy Saturday, the day between Good Friday and Easter Sunday, was the time when Christ descended into hell, down to Limbo, where he liberated all those souls who had been waiting for the Messiah. This was called the harrowing of hell, sifting out the good souls there from all the dross. Uh, uh, of course, it's a little more complicated than I can make it right here, but you get the picture. And Dante adapts this picture 
well, he doesn't really give much attention to the unbaptized babies. But he does give us a long list of Old Testament characters who, Virgil says, were released when, new to Limbo himself, he, Virgil, saw the Mighty One come down victorious to pull out Adam, Abel, Noah, Moses, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Jacob's children, and a whole list of others, including, we'll be glad to hear, the women also, like Rachel, wife of Jacob. Dante takes it much further, though. Not just Old Testament characters, Limbo here becomes the home of what is often called the virtuous pagans. All those Greek and Roman figures who did not have the chance to put their faith in Christ because they'd never heard of him. And not only them, there are at least a few Muslims in Dante's Limbo. Saladin, Sultan of Egypt about a hundred years before Dante's time, who was widely admired in the Christian world for his generous and kind spirit, the other two Muslims are Avicenna and Averroes, very important philosophers whose work influenced Catholic thinking. Now, Catholic doctrine said that the only way you can get into heaven is through accepting Christ's saving power. Even as we see in the Purgatorio, if you repent and turn to Christ just in the final moments of your otherwise wicked life. That's the doctrine. But what is the poetic meaning? What states of our psyche are being illustrated here? The best way I've found to explain this is by bringing in a line from Gil Bailey. You're free to become only what you can imagine becoming, he says. Or to put it another way, you cannot become what you cannot imagine becoming. The souls in limbo could not imagine what heaven was like, Therefore, they could not grow into a condition that would suit them for heaven, that would open them enough to be able to receive, let alone endure, the heavenly life, the heavenly light. Not being baptized, then, becomes an image of not having imagined the possibilities of heavenly grace. To, to oversimplify it, virtue in the pagan world had four elements, the four cardinal virtues, as they're sometimes called, courage, temperance, prudence or wisdom, and justice. These are qualities that anyone using basic human reason can discover and recognize as good. To these, the Christian world, building on its Jewish heritage, added three more virtues, the theological virtues, as they were called faith, hope, and charity, or loving compassion. We cannot recognize these virtues simply by our reasoning powers. They have to be revealed to us. We assent to them not by our intellect, but, but well, let's say by our heart or imagination, once they have been shown to us. I'm not going to take us deeper into all this, but here are some ideas about the way these virtues go beyond what we can rationally work out for ourselves. Hope, as we hinted in the last episode, is the belief that there is a benevolent purpose and meaning to history and to the world which every moment of our lives takes part in. Look, that makes no rational sense, does it? We can't see it and reason it out. But if we consent to believe it, we then move into a much more expansive view of the world, 
perhaps even finding joy in the midst of what is apparently a catastrophe. The virtuous Romans, facing ignominious defeat, catastrophe, would kill themselves to keep their honor. The Christian would not, for, for who can decide what further things life has in store for us, even in defeat? In fact, it is only through defeat of some kind that one can rise to the higher life. This makes sense only after we have believed it or experienced it. And here's another point, self-sacrifice. Well, we find Romans killing themselves, as I've just said, for the sake of their honor or for the good of their country. But the theological virtues tell us to make self-sacrifice a daily habit. Think of others first. If someone steals your overcoat, sacrifice your jacket as well. Forgive your enemies. I think all these things were alien to the Greeks and Romans, except perhaps in rare cases. And these are the qualities of heaven, which they cannot imagine, and therefore cannot attain. And we have to remember that these souls in limbo have been virtuous. They have practiced the cardinal virtues. They've been brave, temperate, prudent, wise, and just. They have not sinned. And, and Limbo describes the world they have chosen. There is the light of reason. There are pleasant meadows and noble buildings. There are quiet intellectual discussions. There are warm friendships. There are important works of art. But there is no joy, no excess of overflowing love for others. None of the qualities that characterize the life in the heavenly city. They have never imagined the joy, the self-sacrificing love that, for instance, we saw in Beatrice in Canto II. And not being able to imagine this, they cannot attain it. You're free to become only what you can imagine becoming. <laughs> this is tough. It's too tough, perhaps, for our modern world, I suspect. But look, this isn't literally an account of what happens to us after death. How could Dante or anyone really know? Let's go back to the poetic or psychological level and remind ourselves that this description of limbo shows us what it is like for us when we reject, or have never heard of, those human capabilities that rise above mere intellectual activity. Maybe this is what we call the secular mindset. There is good science, high art, cheerful, supportive friendships, but often also a kind of existentialist angst at seeing no real meaning in the world, no way to escape the world of the ego into the joy of a more expansive view of a world unified by a loving compassion. Okay, I've drastically oversimplified all this, but perhaps I've suggested a few places where you could start thinking about this. And perhaps I've helped you see that Canto Four is not quite as weird or cruel as a first reading might take it to be. And, and, and part of the game of going through the Inferno, after all, is to encounter new and strange things in this medieval vision that can, if we let them, open our imagination in ways we hadn't expected. But in any case, that's it for Canto Four. 
<laughs> and if you thought the concept of limbo posed problems, wait for Canto 5 and see what Dante has to tell us about lust. See you then.